And that was how to make the elixir of life and holy grail. Next up. I'm a mortal. Your source for all things immortal. Hello, everybody. My name's David Wood. I chair London Futurists. In the past, I worked for 25 years in the early days of the mobile computing and smartphone industry, where I worked as a software engineer, then a technical consultant, and over time as head of research, which meant I had to think about the future, which led me into being the futurist I am today. Earlier in my life, I spent four years studying mathematics at Cambridge University, and then another four years studying philosophy of science, and I still have fond memories of both these disciplines. After all, philosophy of science is about distinguishing what's good science and what's fake science. And that's a question that's probably we're going to come back to later in this interview, I guess. And this being I'm immortal, I mean, you probably suspect we'd ask this at some point. We're curious about the words of immortal and immortality, and we feel like everyone has a different take on it. We're just wondering, what do you think of the word immortal? What does it mean to you? So it's not a word I tend to use in my everyday discussions. I tend to use other words such as I believe in the abolition of aging. I believe that significant extension of healthy longevity is within our grasp if we want it. People will no longer need to age and we will have a comprehensive solution to the diseases which normally inflict us as we get older. But there are other aspects to immortality as well and we can get onto them, I'm sure, too. Perfect. And so... According to that definition of abolition of aging, if you were given the chance to have an extended life or potentially unlimited life, would you take that? I certainly want to extend my life beyond where I am today. I see no circumstances currently in which I would be fed up of living. I see living as the foundation of all the other rights, you know, before we have the right to vote, the right to congregate, the right to free speech, we have the right to be alive. So very much so I wish to promote the opportunity for everybody to remain alive for as long as they wish. And jumping back a little bit, sorry, because you mentioned when you did your introduction, like initially started off with the smartphone industry, uh, mathematics, and typically one wouldn't think that's the conventional path to longevity, because nowadays you're one of the faces of longevity. How did you make that transition? As in what, what first piqued your interest in the whole aging longevity field? Well, I think there are many routes to longevity. I don't think there's only one route. I think everybody has within themselves uh, at least some instinct to want to live longer and keep healthy. Often we suppress that instinct. We get the assumption from society, hey, we should only aspire to three score years and 10 or four score years as it's stated in the Bible and that anything else will be selfish. But we also do have that instinct to want to remain alive, healthy, uh, indefinitely. So I certainly had that instinct from an early days. And then I thought, well, it's not really possible, is it? But in my time in the smartphone industry, I saw the leaps and bounds which technology was making. I saw that uh, calculations, I saw that uh, instances of technology, which initially would uh, require huge amounts of cost, huge amounts of effort, huge facilities, were becoming uh, commonplace. They were taking place inside uh, small computing devices that people carried around with them everywhere. So I got used to the idea of exponential change happening within my lifetime. And then I stumbled across the writings of Ray Kurzweil sometime around 2000. And in that book, uh, which he wrote in 1999, actually, The Age of Spiritual Machines, he set out some possible developments over each decade of the 21st century. And my mind was inspired, expanded. I saw the extensions of trends which I had already experienced in my own professional life. And so I thought, hey, maybe this will be possible. And the more I looked at it, the more I became convinced this is a possibility which is within our grasp. It's not inevitable. It's just a matter of time. We're bound to get there. I think we have a lot of work to do, and it's up to each and every one of us to help to tilt the trajectory of human history towards this uh, possible outcome. But it is uh, a real possibility within 20 or 30 years. Perfect. Now that we've gotten a little bit of your background on how you're interested in uh, longevity and aging, could you describe for the audience what a day in David Wood's life looks like? What do you do when you wake up? What is your daily activities? Anything along the lines of that? So what I try to do overall is to improve the caliber of the public discussion about the future. 
I feel that the future uh, is coming at us faster than ever before. When I was young, the future was something that might happen to your grandchildren or was something that might happen in the 22nd century or 23rd century, as in the Star Trek films. But increasingly, the future is uh, here and more of it's coming early. So we have to think wisely, thoughtfully, well-informed ways about the future scenarios. And that's what I try to do uh, from the first thing I do in the morning to the last thing I do at night. I do this by writing. I also do this by paying attention to what other people are saying. So one of the very first things I'm doing in the morning is looking at my social media feeds to see are there interesting uh, discussions, are there interesting news developments, are there new scenarios which deserve my attention, where should I be jumping in or trying to jump into some of these discussions. Later in the day I may write uh, or I may get involved in organizing events. Before there was the pandemic lockdown, I would organize one or two real life meetings of London Futurists every month, which would revolve around one or two or more speakers giving presentations. And that takes quite a bit of organization. And some of the time, occasionally I am engaged professionally by organizations, corporations to help them think through what the disruptive changes in the near future might mean for them and how they can thrive on them rather than being disturbed and horribly disrupted by them. Okay, wow, that's, that's, a, that's a whole lot. I remember you're pretty involved in promoting other people's books too. I know you've written a few books of yourself. But I remember when I was first introduced to you when I think Andrew Steele released his book, Ageless, a while back. I was like, wow, like it's, it's great that you're writing a lot, but you're helping other people who are also writing about aging also promote their work. But I know today we're talking a lot about transhumanism, anti-aging, and some people might not have, uh, may, may not know what they, we mean by transhumanist and a futurist. Is there a difference between the two or what do they really mean to you? So there is a difference between these three categories. A uh, futurist is somebody who thinks it's worthwhile to consider future scenarios. Some people say it's not worthwhile. It's uh, just too difficult. You know, they prefer to live in the present. Some people make a virtue of the fact, hey, I live in the present and uh, there's no point trying to foresee the future because the future is too unpredictable. Well, I strongly disagree with that. We can't predict the future exactly, of course. It's like the proverbial butterfly that flaps its wings and gives rise to a tornado. That kind of escalation of a contingency does take place, but there are nevertheless patterns and trends. And although we can't predict the weather, what the weather will be uh, with any precision a year's time, we can predict the trend in climate with uh, more precision. And it's the same with many other areas. So a futurist is somebody who applies techniques, who gathers data, who has various methods we try and distinguish uh, between the kind of futurism that used to take place in the fairground uh, stalls when you would give some money to uh, an imagined uh, forecaster who had a crystal ball. That's not what we're trying to do. And we want to separate futurism from that kind of futurology, the same way that astronomy grew out of astrology, the same way that chemistry grew out of alchemy with uh, more systematic uh, application of methods. So, and then anti-aging uh, is simply the idea that it is possible, as I've said, that technological changes, better medical processes, rejuvenation biotechnology could emerge uh, reasonably soon and could significantly extend people's lifespans. And some people say, well, great, let's make that happen. But a futurist will want to add to that conversation. Well, let's consider the consequences. What will happen if there are more people alive for longer? And to be fair, a, a lot of critics of uh, longevity the industry raise exactly these points and uh, some members of the longevity industry will say well actually uh, let's not focus on these questions let's just hurry up and develop the technology let's hurry up and develop the, the therapies and I have some sympathy for that but I think we do need to engage in the discussion as well what's going to happen to family life if people are living for centuries rather than just a uh, 70 years what's going to happen to all the other things and so that's the futurist angle to the longevity discussion. And that's separate again from transhumanism. The transhumanism is a particular view about what's desirable in the future. And transhumanists say it's not just possible that we will live as we are today, but longer. 
that is with super longevity. It's also possible that many other aspects of our human character can be improved. Many other things that we have inherited from evolution, from our biological evolution, our cultural evolution, the philosophical ideas which are around us, they actually constrain us and hold us back. And we will be able to break free of these limits as well as breaking free from the limits of uh, decaying bodies. So in a nutshell, transhumanism says it is possible and desirable to apply methods of science and technology and good values to enhance human experience. And the possibilities are that within just a few decades, human experience will be as more improved from today as the difference between uh, Homo sapiens and the apes that preceded us uh, millions of years ago. And that distinction that separation of species took millions of years and took place according to blind natural evolution. Whereas the intelligent redesign of humanity into transhumanity and then posthumanity is something that could take place within just a few decades. But the delta in intelligence, the delta in the things done could be just as large. And of course, that's a shocking idea too. And it raises its own set of questions, which then I want to apply the discipline of futurism again to explore these transhumanities aspirations. So what type of people are more likely to be transhumanists? Is it is there a correlation between if you have a scientific education that you want to be transhumanist? And additionally, like, for example, say I love, I like the idea of extending my life. Does that immediately make me a transhumanist? Or is there a separate category for that? So the desire to extend your life is a one step towards transhumanism. But as I said, it's only one dimension of the multiple possibilities that transhumanists foresee. And transhumanists talk about sometimes three supers or sometimes four supers or even five. So the first super is super longevity, which is what we've talked about. The second super is super intelligence. It's when we have much greater thinking ability. We are much less prone to the mistakes of reasoning, which we have inherited from evolution known as cognitive biases, known informally as collective stupidity. You know, we do a lot of stupid things. Why? Because evolution made us that way. And that uh, tendency is more dangerous now than before. So the super longevity, super intelligence, then the super happiness in which we have uh, levels of uh, mental well-being, uh, emotional health, as it were, far in excess of today's average. After all, far too many people suffer from emotional anguish. Far too many people suffer from depression and stress. And frankly, far too many young people in particular self-harm or commit suicide. So there's that angle. Then there's the fourth angle, which I like to talk about, which is super democracy. It's a transformation of how we as humans interact and breaking away from our existing instincts, which is to take power and dominate using power. It's to deceive each other. It's to uh, fail to really live for the sake of the whole community. It's to get involved in tribal gangs uh, of one sort, online or offline. So back to your question, what kind of person is likely to want to embrace these four possibilities? And to an extent, it's got to be somebody who is uh, somehow feels confident with being an outsider, because today it is more of an outsider's point of view. So if there is a correlation, it's with willingness to entertain and consider outlandish ideas. So quite a lot of transhumanists, for example, just the one thing I've noticed, are okay with the idea of the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, which says that actually we are living in a a multiverse in which there are multiple versions of each other which have diverged because in one branch of the multiverse we've taken one decision which is i decided to become a software engineer and another branch of the multiverse i remained within academia and i'm probably sitting somewhere as a, a senior lecturer and in, in some uh, obscure university somewhere or other that's another branch and so that's just one way in which people need to be prepared people who are prepared to consider outlandish possibilities are more ready today to embrace the ideas of transhumanism but I'm not happy with that state of affairs. I want to make transhumanism much more of a mainstream philosophy. To my mind, transhumanism is for everyone. And one of the slogans, which I have often talked about, is transhumanism for all, meaning that the benefits of these technologies should apply to everybody, but also that everybody should feel increasingly comfortable saying, hey, I like this transhumanist idea, count me in. And they will do that to the extent that they see people like them, people they can identify with also part of this movement. Right. Because I think right now, if you were to tell someone you're a transhumanist, they might give you sort of a weird look. I think it's not viewed necessarily super favorably in the general public. So I'm wondering, 
why is that? And we mentioned earlier the four types of supers, right? Super intelligence, longevity, uh, emotional, and yours was democracy as well. Is there one that you see the public having more opposition towards than the others? The public uh, has mixed views on the word transhumanism. I actually start my most recent book, which has just come out, The Vital Foresight, with uh, more or less these words. Don't put that word on the cover of your book. Several of my friends uh, advised me against putting transhumanism uh, as the subtitle. They said that that word is toxic. It's the T word. Avoid it. Then I go on to say, well, I think it's a good word and I want to defend it. It's, it's a T word for transhumanism, but it's, it sums up a bunch of uh, philosophies that are very important. Uh, it's transformational possibilities, which everybody needs to think about. And it's T for timely as well as T for transformational. It's something that we need to think about now. But you're right, there is a, a lot of apprehension about uh, the kind of change that uh, transhumanism envisions. And it's not entirely wrong that people are apprehensive about change. Indeed, we transhumanists ourselves say that these technologies, which excite us, do also have a bad potential too, if they are not well managed. And so the critics of transhumanism sometimes say, you guys aren't thinking hard enough about the consequences of the genie you're letting out of the bottle. You are just uh, enthusiasts for big corporations, enthusiasts for techno solutions, and you don't think broadly enough about the consequences. So indeed, I actually, in my book, talk about something called the transhumanist shadow, which is a set of tendencies that occasionally you'll find within some transhumanists, and within people in our broader uh, umbrella of a movement, which uh, I think need to be challenged and changed. And part of it is uh, reluctance to look seriously at the risks as well as the opportunities. Part of it is a too willing tendency occasionally to be enthusiastic about uh, solutions which aren't here yet, which are hyped, which don't have good evidence and which actually could be dangerous. Part of that shadow is also sometimes a focus on one or two solutions to the exclusion of everything else. Whereas we transhumanists, I think at core, aren't about highlighting one solution as the be all and end all. We just say, let's look seriously at all the possibilities that science and technology and values have to give us and let's embrace them. So transhumanists have got to face up to this uh, dark uh, underbelly within our movement. Uh, we have a good uh, record in the sense that if you look at the nearest thing to core documents for the movement, it's not like articles of faith. We're not that. We're not a religion. But there is a transhumanist declaration from 1998, which lots of people worked on together. And of the eight clauses in that short declaration, four of them, uh, in various ways, consider the risks and the difficulties and drawbacks that uh, need to be carefully evaluated. And it calls for ongoing discussions. It calls for bringing together lots of insight and for taking wise decisions and then for having social processes to ensure conformance to the decisions. So at heart, uh, active transhumanism has a very good potential and we just need to deal with some of the things which occasionally have caused uh, some critics to be worried. At the same time, I think there are critics of transhumanism who are unfair, who are ill-informed, who deliberately sometimes pick on uh, things and distort them. And I have a whole chapter in my book. It's a chapter called Antithesis. It looks at, I think, 14 different criticisms of transhumanism that are often raised. And I consider all of these 14 to be unfounded or unfair or distorted in various ways. And I give my answer. And I hope that by giving that answer, I move from a thesis via these antithesis to a broader synthesis, a deeper understanding of the true strengths and the value of a transhumanism as a philosophy and as a movement. So I'm going to shift the conversation a little bit from transhumanism, a little bit more to aging. So why is it that uh, at least the people we've spoken to, I found that um, this idea of abolishing aging, it's very ingrained with the idea of what is the future? Why is that the case? Well, when you think that the people will no longer grow old and die, it changes many of the basic assumptions on which society is uh, organized. There is the assumption that you will be able to get a job and in time you'll be able to be promoted into higher levels in the organization. Why? In part because the people at the top will be retiring and moving on and creating gaps for you to move up to. So that's just one example in which uh, assumptions about aging are part of the 
background in which uh, society is organized. And when this no longer happens, then of course there are questions that need to be raised. If the population keeps on growing, will we return to the threats that uh, Thomas Malthus, the 18th century writer in Britain who forecasts that uh, there'd never be enough food to feed everyone. Well, since he wrote, there's been a huge improvements in agricultural capability, and we have found ways to feed a much larger population. But people are worried that, uh, well, uh, if there are no longer people dying, the population is going to grow and grow, and these issues of overpopulation will return. And it is a, a fair question. And finally, people worry about an extension of something they often see, which is that many of the most uh, successful medical uh, technologies are very expensive medical technologies, and uh, there is a division in society about who gets to access them. And there is a fear, which has been expressed in some works of science fiction. I think of the film Elysium, amongst others, which came out maybe 10 years ago, in which there was just a very small subset of humanity living in a, a satellite that was going around the Earth, which had access to wonderfully transformative uh, medical technologies, but the rest of society had very much a second or third class medical experience. Then people worry about that too. So the questions are there and I think we do have to answer them and we have to consider scenarios to ensure that we don't end up in something like that. And instead we end up in a society in which everybody has the opportunity, if they wish, to benefit from this uh, possibility. Well, on that note of possible scenarios, because you mentioned there was the satellite with everyone who had access to the certain technologies, while everyone else was sort of separate, like segregated from them, there is the issue of inequality. But I'm also aware that just because the technology is available, so there will be some people who will adopt all of them very rapidly and widely will accept any new innovation that comes through. But those other people who would actively reject all of them, because it's their own choice, maybe they don't want any of them, just like how right now smartphones are pretty common, but doesn't mean everyone in the world would want to own a smartphone, even if given the opportunity. So my worry is that if we have people who are accepting all the technologies, and some people who are rejecting all of them, will we still be able to have one society that is able to provide and that both of them can be a part of? For example, like right now, I think Sufo in China, right? There's the, um, they're setting up the system where to purchase items, it's becoming increasingly common to need a smartphone to pay for things. And I think cash is becoming less common, but some people may not want a smartphone and in that case, then they were not able to pay us. So I'm wondering in our scenario here, do you see that happening with the adoption of technology such as life extension? So transhumanism is also about enabling choice. It's about enabling diversity. It's about saying to people, if you want to have a different morphology, if you want to have a different body shape, uh, you should be able to do so. If you want to have a different uh, set of uh, working practices, you should be able to do so. And so we already have some diversity in society and we can look forward to a time when there is much more diversity than we have today. And broadly speaking, that's a good thing to have. So, as you point out, it does throw up some practical difficulties. And we already have these practical difficulties today with people who have different attitudes towards technology, different lifestyle views, different personal philosophies. How do we coexist? And that infrastructure of coexistence is a big challenge. And we have to figure out what are the minimums that we are going to insist. So when I say I support diversity, there are various things that I'm not going to be happy with. For example, I'm not going to say all cultures are equal. If I see a culture that enforces that women should not be educated, for example, I'm not going to say this is good. You know, they've decided it. That's all right. If I see a culture that denies their children access to life-saving medical technology and say that their holy book prohibits it, I'm not going to be happy with that either. So there are some limits to this uh, freedom. And the question of limits to freedom is uh, a profound one. And we argue about it all the time. And that's entirely right. So somebody may say they want to make their own decision about how much alcohol they drink before they're allowed to drive, that they can be their own judge of that. And we as society say, no, we're not going to give people that choice. You know, that's a freedom which is actually a dangerous freedom. So figuring out where the personal freedoms should extend and where they should be curtailed is difficult. And nobody should be able to say, hey, there's an easy answer here. But it's something we have to work on together. So transhumanism does envision a rich diversity. And of the values that I talk about in my book, I list 13 transhumanist values. The 13th is the celebration of a diversity within a broad transhumanist framework. Jumping again back a little bit more to more specifics of aging. If we were to come up with some type of, you know, life extension, rejuvenation therapy that reverts our age or helps us live longer, 
would people be less likely to do regular maintenance, for example, eating healthy, you know, not smoking, other things like that, because they understand that, oh, there's this rejuvenation therapy, I don't need to worry about taking care of myself anymore. So I, I think there will be some changes as technology develops, we can stop doing things which previously we thought were important. You know, people used to have to remember lots of telephone numbers. People remembered lots of things in their minds. People used to remember uh, lots of mathematics in their heads for, or arithmetic, more precisely, numbers. But now we can uh, give up on that because we have technology in some sense that will do that job for us and free us to focus on other things. So maybe that some things that we think of as necessary today will no longer be necessary in the future. And in principle, I don't mind that. What I do worry about is what you've touched on is that some people, might, their lives might deteriorate as a result. If they don't look after themselves, they may become What's the film? Wally, isn't it? By is it Disney, yeah. uh, in which in the future people are pleasant, but they are indolent. They are lazy. They sit on these large seats and all day watch some uh, equivalent of Netflix uh, or dumbed down Netflix, in fact. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's another science fiction uh, story, which is uh, very famous. It's Brave New World, written by Aldous Huxley, who incidentally is the brother of the person Julian Huxley, who coined the term transhumanism uh, in uh, in modern times in the 1950s. Anyway, so there is a worry that uh, some people might uh, become uh, damaged by technology uh, and not enhanced. So in Brave New World, people's lives are in some sense carefree, but there's no deep emotional vitality there. There are superficial relationships, but the, the word mother is actually an abusive word, a horrific word inside that and people are uh, not brought up within a family group. So that's uh, a warning for us. And we do need to worry about these things. Uh, and that's uh, part of the discussion. So what kind of future we would like? We would like a world in which people uh, are able to put themselves with great vigor and uh, great passion into whatever projects they would like. And to some extent, it might be a lot of physical exercise. I foresee lots of physical exercise for myself. Even if there are therapies that will uh, rejuvenate my body, I still foresee doing some things which I enjoy occasionally playing golf, for example. And uh, I imagine I'll continue doing that on a regular basis. And going back, I think you mentioned one other argument. Um, there's several against life extension. The other one you mentioned was overpopulation. I think you've given your argument against this in a few different podcasts. But one of the things we're talking about, um, I think with a separate, who is it, Sufal? Um, some economic economist, sorry, we brought up the idea of there would be some sort of, I guess, one, I think China had a one child policy if there'd be something like that, or even like a one child per century policy, if we're thinking very long term, we're just wondering, what are your thoughts on something like that existing? Do you think it could happen or that it would, it would never be a problem because we'd be able to solve the issue of overpopulation before even reaching that state? Well, that's an interesting idea. One child per century. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, something that could be part of the future. As you say, it depends on uh, how confident uh, we in society are that we are on top of the population as a whole, whether we have enough uh, means to support a larger population. And we can project various things into the future. We can uh, envision an ongoing revolution in agriculture. We've already had maybe three agricultural revolutions. People talk about four industrial revolutions. Well, we're having a fourth agricultural revolution in which, for example, there is vertical farming in which there is a meat and fish grown in labs without involving sentient creatures. And this will make much more efficient use of the land, much less requirements on water. It wouldn't need antibiotics and so on. So we can foresee that change. And we can foresee other changes in which we build higher skyscrapers, which are ecologically delightful and people are enjoying living there. And in due course, we can envision moving people into outer space too, potentially. There's a lot of possibilities ahead. But in the future, I think it is still the case that people will want from time to time to have another child. It is a tremendously powerful human instinct to have a child. And uh, I don't agree that necessarily people will be content just with one child each. People are extrapolating from the current trend, which is towards smaller family size. I'm a bit cautious about extrapolating that trend further. One reason the families have become smaller is because uh, working mothers uh, are 
we'd prefer to prioritize their career for a while. Well, if it's going to be the case that we can reverse the menopause, if it's going to be the case that we can keep people not only healthy and vital, but also fertile much longer, I see more people as they form new relationships, possibly in the future, may well want to bring new humans to, into existence. So I think we have to be open to new possibilities. Here's one thing we should definitely not do. We should not say, hey, we're never going to solve this problem. Therefore, we have to forbid life extension. I think that's a terrible uh, misprioritization. Uh, the problem of aging and all the suffering that that brings, the suffering as people dying, the suffering of broken relationships, the suffering of damaged potential, unfulfilled potential, that is uh, here and now and a huge issue. And so we should do all we can to address that. And then in due course, there will be second and third order effects, which we can look at, including in due course overpopulation. But we're not going to get there anytime soon. We're going to have quite a long time before the Earth exceeds its carrying capacity. Since we're on the topic of children, I feel like it's a natural segue for me to talk a little bit more about education, which I know you've talked about before and written about. So what do you think in today's day and age is missing from education in order to prepare young and even older populations for changes upcoming, such as, you know, potentially extreme life extension. This is a very big topic. I mean, education has developed over the centuries and over the decades to prepare people for a certain set of assumptions about the how society operates. And these, these assumptions are now almost all wrong. And they, the assumption that you would have to learn skills for a career, that you could probably stay inside one profession using the same sort of skills for many decades, that's wrong. The assumption has generally been of linear change rather than exponential change. The assumption has been of a broad monoculture with little cultural variation. Well, we need now to be much more prepared for change. So the start of my syllabus for the future, I will put uh, learn how to learn. You know, the three R's of the past used to be reading, writing, and arithmetic, so-called. Well, the first uh, things that we have to put in our education for the future, and here I'm quoting, I think, Buckminster Fuller, are the ability to unlearn and the ability to relearn which means that we've got to be fluid in learning new skills all the time. And part of that requires an emotional confidence because a change frightens people. Change moves people from a situation in which they are reasonably comfortable in which they think they know what they're doing into a situation where we are making more mistakes. And we've got to be comfortable with making mistakes, provided we can learn from them. So something else I bring into my vital syllabus for the future is extra focus on emotional intelligence, an extra focus on the discipline of agility. Agility is a word from the software industry. It says that change needs to be something that uh, we are comfortable with rather than trying to agree a single large plan up front and commit to it and follow it through regardless. We need to be able to break our lives down into small chunks, small sprints is the word the agile community uses. Sprints in which we're able to focus on something and at the end of that we can look at it. What have we learned from the failures and successes and how do we adapt? So that's part of what I will put in a more comprehensive change in society, so education. We have to prepare people for future, which is different from today. And that requires skills of analyzing today's trends, but it also requires skills of imagination to imagine things different from today's trends. So we must know what is possible, but we also need to become better at seeing what might be possible. We need to know what is desirable today, but we also need to be better at imagining what might become desirable. And then once we've done that, exercises of imagination, to imagine new scenarios, combining trends, subtracting things which are presently core to our lives, but maybe we can consider dropping. When we've done that imaginative exercise, then we need to apply again new skills of a critical judgment and analysis to figure out, all right, uh, which of these actually stand up, which of them are credible from a point of view of science. And so I put uh, the philosophy of science, I put the distinction between good science and bad science as a core part of my vital syllabus as well. And then also, which of them are desirable from a point of view of the human trajectory. And so I put that a vision of the values uh, at the center of education as well. We have to be comfortable in having discussions about values. It's not something we should uh, shy away from and be afraid of. Okay. We've heard two possible scenarios in terms of how education could change. One being that if people live very long, I think right now, what almost like the 
the minimum education, what's considered basic education is for many now university, right? So we've heard some people say that with life extension, our education system will be pushed towards um, having to do many, many more years of school before entering the workplace in order to be competitive. And we've heard other people say it would shift more so where the current education system may not change that radically, but instead people would have to get continuous education throughout their lifetime. I suspect, are you leaning more towards the latter of the two? Well, I agree that we should become comfortable with continuous education, but I also think that today's educational system must change. Many things that are being taught today are no longer quite so vital and quite so urgent. And so, for example, even maths, you know, I love calculus, but I think we need to become uh, more comfortable with statistics. And so I would put more statistics and more probabilistic thinking earlier and maybe some of the indefinite integrals, which I loved as a student, you know, maybe that uh, should should be deprioritized, for example. Uh, We should have more about uh, coexisting with robots, coexisting with AIs. Uh, That should be a vital part of the syllabus. So that's going to change from an early age. It's going to change in all aspects. And of course, the education industry, like all industries, is resistant to change. Understandably so. But uh, frankly, people people need to be much better than before at uh, the kind of skills I've mentioned. We need to be better at critical thinking. We need to be better at collective intelligence as well. And uh, another skill I will highlight as even more important in the future than now is that of collaboration. That's figuring out who we can trust because uh, any of us as individuals, we have limits to the amount of things we can personally understand. So we need to be ready to figure out which communities, which partnerships to form to help us understand more broadly. And when to change these alliances, when communities that were once a sources of inspiration, source of knowledge are no longer so vital as before. So that uh, ongoing skills of collaborative intelligence Critical intelligence and coexistence with artificial intelligence, that's something we need from an early age. So I, I answered your question as both. <laughs> okay, thank you. And for any of the audience that are listening in right now who are like, oh, whether they're young or older and are feeling like they are not educated enough on this topic, they feel like their education is not enough, how can they jump in and start making a difference in this, not this field, but even just change in general? Well, thankfully, there is... Uh, wonderful set of resources online, which are increasingly accessible to everybody. This is part of the vision that education for all should be free as much as possible, but it can be a bewildering set of choices, which is why it comes back to the question of community. Which community do you want to connect to so that they will point out stuff that's likely to be helpful rather than unhelpful? And we are aware of communities in which actually people learn a lot online, but it leads them down rabbit holes. It leads them into horrible conspiracy theories. And so it is very important that we figure out which are the communities that are worth attaching to. And so I would urge people to connect onto various communities online. There are some very good longevity communities I like the work being done by the Lifespan Institute, for example, lifespan.io. It is accessible to people of all ages, some of their material, so people should connect to that. If people are a bit older, they can connect to some of the other online institutes. There is wonderful things being done by the Millennium Project, for example, or by the Foresight Institute. And I could also mention the London Futurist community, which I run. And so joining that. And if you're interested in transhumanism, then the world's premier transhumanist community. Well, this, uh, I can point to Humanity Plus, which is a, originally the World Transhumanist Association. And it has a lot of different initiatives, including transhumanist studies. So there are some information there. And if people are interested in possible political action as, as resulting from this, there are a number of transhumanist political organizations around. There's the IE. The Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, which I am a board member, which looks from a techno-progressive perspective on the future of uh, politics. And I should also mention the U.S. Transhumanist Party, which people can find online. They have a a lot to do with uh, longevity initiatives. One of their core principles is enabling uh, the technologies for longevity for everybody. So that is another community which I can recommend people can check out. And, and um, I guess just for people who, for a lot of people, you might be their first introduction to at least, because uh, I'm immortal focuses more on the super longevity aspect in terms of transhumanism. So for people who, if this is their first introduction, could you sort of explain why the damage repair approach 
is the one that all the all the people in the longevity field are promoting. To be frank, I'm not aware of the other ideas in this field, but why is the damage repair one so heavily promoted? Well, the damage repair approach to longevity is a, what we can call a paradigm change. It's a big thinking approach to numerous uh, diseases. So historically, people assumed that they had to study each of the chronic diseases to work out their cure. So a whole bunch of people looking at cancer, another whole bunch of people looking at heart disease, another whole bunch of people looking at uh, dementia and diabetes and stroke and liver disease and so on. These are the major killers in today's world. If we wind back to 1900, what I've just mentioned were not the main killers in, uh, for example, the US or Canada or the UK. The biggest killers in 1900 were infections of the uh, digestive system, uh, gastroenteritis, there was tuberculosis, there was influenza, and there was pneumonia, and uh, they killed huge numbers. And there were other infectious diseases such as diphtheria and uh, malaria and yellow fever and so on. And these were the major killers. And uh, for a while, people looked at each of these diseases individually. And then there was a, a new paradigm change, which was recognizing that these diseases, in a sense, were caused by bad hygiene at a microscopic level, that we were letting... Uh, organisms enter our bodies, which uh, we couldn't see until we developed sufficiently good uh, microscopes. It's about the 1880s that pe before people actually identified the bacillus that was uh, causing uh, tuberculosis. And from then on, that new paradigm focusing on addressing these microorganisms revolutionized approaches in multiple diseases of infection, as a result of which most of the diseases that I mentioned now are much less prevalent, at least in uh, the developed parts of the world. So in the same way, the is a new idea about a common cause for all these remaining chronic diseases, which still do kill people, especially elderly people. And the idea is that these diseases are manifestation of things gradually going wrong all throughout the body, uh, things which arise as a side effect of life. And that idea is easy to state. The reason it's significant today is that we have for the first time the new sets of tools, just as the infectious diseases could not be properly tackled until people had developed sufficiently powerful microscopes and a whole bunch of other techniques, including the ability to develop vaccines and uh, antibiotics. The, this uh, damage repair mechanism is not really going to work until we have got more of the techniques of the fourth industrial revolution under our control, which includes nanotechnology, includes nanobots, or more control and the very fine level uh, includes uh, genetic reprogramming. So not just reprogramming our silicon, something we're comfortable and familiar with, but reprogramming our genetics, our epigenetics, uh, reprogramming our biome, reprogramming the set of proteins which are throughout the body. So that's the biotech angle of the fourth industrial revolution. And very importantly, the infotech angle in which we use information technology, artificial intelligence, deep learning of big data to to reach uh, more comprehensive uh, and reliable mechanisms to repair damage. I have to say there are people in the extended longevity community who have a slightly different view on this, and they say we shouldn't be trying to uh, just repair the damage as it's caused. We should be looking still for some other kind of co uh, single cause, which is worth looking at. Some people still imagine there's a biological ticking clock somewhere that programs us for decay. Uh, I don't agree with that view, but uh, I want to point out that uh, there are more than one approach in the field. And there's also a variety of views as to which types of damage will be more important to address than others. So some people say, let's put all our focus on uh, extending telomeres, that if we can say, which is the bit at the end of each of our chromosomes, which tends to get smaller each time cells divide. And there are cases in nature when telomeres can be extended again, allowing cells to be uh, dividing more often. So some people say, let's uh, focus on that. And then many of the other aspects of damage will be cured automatically. Others say we should look at the epigenetic damage. This is, for example, David Sinclair, who is a leading practitioner from Harvard, uh, who says that we have the ability now to epigenetically reprogram cells in our body to put them into a slightly younger state. So this is not changing the DNA. 
but it's changing the set of tags on the DNA, tags such as ethyl groups or methyl groups, which influence how the DNA in each cell is expressed. And as we get older, some of these tags end up in the wrong places in different parts of the body, and we can undo that. And it is the vision of David Sinclair that doing that will allow significant improvements in damage repair elsewhere in the body. So we don't know, and I, for one, celebrate the multiple different approaches being applied. Some of them are singular approaches. Some of them are multiple approaches. And uh, let's uh, keep uh, both all these disciplines alive until we are confident we've got a really good solution. So we've spoken a lot about things. I, I have a little bit of a question that is more so to pick your brain on what you envision the future looking like in terms of life extension therapy specifically. So a lot of people, they see a like life extension therapy will be a pill you pop. You just drink, you you drink some water, have a pill, boom, your life is ex- extended 20 years. Other people see it as like a regular activity where you go in every like five years, get some type of therapy. It's almost like a tune-up that you would expect to do on your automobile. How do you envision life extension therapy being administered? I think it's going to change over time. To start off with, it's going to be invasive and intrusive. It's going to be quite a major thing. And over time, people will figure out ways in which it will be less invasive and less intrusive. Another example is we go from time to time to the dental hygienist. And the dental hygienist undoes a lot of damage, the plaque that builds up on our teeth. And so avoids development of gum disease, which, by the way, seems to be related to damage in other parts of the body, too. So it's a good intervention. So we'll have more things like that. So instead of visiting the dental hygienist, something that takes, what, maybe 45 minutes once every six months, we will visit uh, other sorts of uh, practitioners who will do other sorts of uh, damage repair. And some of them may be quite difficult to start off with. Uh, Some of them may initially be expensive, but uh, with uh, sufficient innovation, sufficient research, sufficient different people pursuing different ideas, I think it will become easier and easier. And eventually, it might just be a pill, but we won't get there straight away, I don't think. So then what sort of, because I know people in this field, it's more a matter of when, not necessarily an if, right? But I guess by, let's say, I don't know, let's say by 2050, right? uh, How far do you think we'll be along in terms of reaching a state where, as your book says, we've abolished aging? So I think there's uh, at least a 50% chance we will have a comprehensively abolished aging by 2050. I would put the date a bit closer than that. I think there's a 50% chance we may have abolished aging. Let's say there could be a 50% chance that we will have abolished aging by 2040. But the proviso, the proviso is that uh, we've got to decide that we want to do it. The proviso is that we've got to put lots more effort into this, that we've got to make it more acceptable for people to study the common cause of aging rather than just looking at the individual fields of biology. And we've also got to encourage more investment by large companies such as Google's Calico, uh, such as Apple. They're talking about getting increasingly into the healthcare space. Apple have said that the healthcare space could be more significant for them commercially in the future than any field they've been in the past. And if you bear in mind that Apple became the world's first trillion dollar company and then the first two trillion dollar company on the back of what it did with smartphones and uh, the iPhones, then you can see the possible significance ahead. So if that kind of investment takes place privately by corporations and also with the backing of governments, which I think absolutely needs to happen, then we could see a cascade of progress. And the reason there could be a cascade of progress is innovation builds on innovation. When you have more people working in a field, even though 99% of them may not succeed, they'll be more likely that but uh, at least some of the ideas are breakthroughs. And if you have a big enough community as well, you have other people who are studying which of these breakthroughs almost worked, and therefore they're able to complement them and bring two or three ideas together. So if there is enough people working on this field, we will see an exponential rate of improvement. If you go back to the 1980s, there was maybe, what, only 10 people in the world who were seriously working on the idea that we could significantly extend uh, human aging. And every 10 years or so, there's at least 10 times as many people working. If that trend continues... And provided we don't hit some fundamental blockages, which uh, we have not foreseen. And provided our general political uh, framework remains healthy. And that has been under some threats recently. 
But uh, so long as we avoid uh, Cold War 2.0, uh, horrific exchange of uh, weapons of one sort or another, so long as our politicians remain at least sen somehow sensible, somehow rational, then I believe we have could have a 50% chance of having comprehensive solutions to aging by 2040. But it comes down to us. Are we going to push for it or are we going to be distracted? Are we going to be discouraged? Are we going to be sidelined? Since we're nearing the end of our podcast, I just have one more question before we get to our concluding questions. Uh, and it's about this term I've heard while reading up on you called humanity plus. Could you just quickly define what exactly is human humanity plus and what exactly is happening with humanity plus today in 2021? Humanity Plus is the name of the organization nowadays, which was created as the World Transhumanist Association in 1998. And they decided to rebrand themselves as Humanity Plus about 12 years ago now. I've forgotten the exact date. They thought uh, there was some resistance to the term transhumanism. Humanity Plus was uh, a word that uh, was less frightening. And there is some uh, sense in that. But it just means that uh, we will be human, but we will have more of the aspects of humanity that we really care about. And corresponding, we will have less of some of the aspects of human nature that we don't like so much, like the aging aspect or the stupid aspect or the depressed aspect or the abuse of power aspect. So Humanity Plus uh, has a regular salons, uh, regular online events. It has a newsletter, uh, which uh, people can sign up for for free. And there's also a membership scheme. As I remember, it's uh, $60 a year for people in full-time employment or who count themselves as able to pay it. And there is a half-price option for people who are students or from the developing world. And that gets you onto a mailing list, which uh, continues some of the discussions that we've been touching on today. Okay, great. Thank you for sharing. I guess as we wrap up today, because we've discussed a lot, whether it be, I guess, as far as as broad as transhumanism, or if you really want to focus on aging, what is one focus that you really want people to take away from today? So the future for aging could be very good indeed, or it could be bad. It's up to us to make the difference. There are possibilities within a few decades in which aging is abolished. There are also possibilities in just a few decades in which we tend to live less long than today and are more chronically ill than today. What's gonna to make the difference? It's you and me and people listening, whether we are applying ourselves constructively and creatively and collaboratively in this great endeavor. So David, where can people learn more about your work, support it, or even get involved? I have a blog, dw2blog.com. That's two as a digit. And I've written on there about my most recent book, Vital Foresight, which I encourage people to look at. There's a, you can read quite a lot of the book in Amazon and it's free preview, I noticed. So people can dig into that and decide whether they would like to look at it further. On Twitter, I am DW2. The two is actually a throwback to my days as a mathematician because my real initials are DWW and I rewrote wow. that as DW squared. And so on Twitter, I am DW2 and you will find me tweeting about all kinds of eclectic things there. So for all you guys listening, any links David just discussed will be in the description below. Once again, thank you, David, for coming on. I'm Immortal, your source for all things Immortal. We really appreciate you taking the time and coming to speak with us today. It's been my pleasure.